most of us, when we make a mistake, when we、uh, stuff up in some kind of way, we speak to ourselves like the first: "I should have done that better. How could I have been so stupid? Why have I made this mistake?" And we're just kicking ourselves when we're down. We're just, and it's like an amplifier for that for that struggle that we're in. That was Jennifer Kemp on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal, and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of *Be Mighty* and *The Big Book of Act Metaphors*. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy, and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com/potc for five percent off your order. That's u p l i f t desk.com/potc to get five percent off your entire order. It's Patricia Carpus, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety. Successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. I am here with Katie Rothfelder, who is our dissemination coordinator, and we thought we'd bring her on because we talk a lot about Praxis. How Praxis sponsors this podcast—they offer online continuing education for professionals, everything from DBT to ACT training to compassion-focused therapy. And Katie's had some personal experience with Praxis that I think would be helpful for you to all learn about. Yeah, Diana. I started out with Stephen Hayes Act Immersion Program, and that was really my first chance to get, you know, really into Act. And then since then, I've had these kind of on-demand course opportunities.、Um, the one that really sticks out to me is Lou Lasbigado's Feedback Enhanced Act Course, which was this really beautiful mix of instruction for really difficult Act concepts. And then in-depth learning with practice that grew my muscles as a, a brand new clinician so much. So, if you are interested in taking a Praxis course, go ahead and go to our website offtheclockpsych.com, and we have a discount code for you for some of the live courses. Check them out. Praxis Continuing Education. Diana, and if you're a healthcare worker or a mental health therapist, you may find that some of your clients are caught in a tug of war with food and weight. They battle their body image and eating, and are entangled in preoccupation about weight or feeling stuck in cycles of rigid dieting, overeating, shame, or hopelessness. I'm going to be offering a live online webinar with Pessy Continuing Education on using ACT for eating and body image concerns, and then I hope you'll join me on Friday, December 3rd, 2021, from 9:00. A.M. to 5 P.M. Central Standard Time. You can learn more through my events page at drdianahill.com. Hope to see you there. Hi, this is Debbie. I'm here with Jill today to introduce an episode with Jennifer Kemp on acceptance and commitment therapy for perfectionism. Whether you're a perfectionist yourself or whether you know and love a perfectionist, I think there will be something in this episode that that will be relevant and interesting to you. Uh, Jill, what did you think about this episode? 
Well, it's funny, Debbie, because when I first started listening, I thought, oh, I'm so not a perfectionist. Like, this is something I probably won't be able to personally relate to, but I had read Jennifer's book. It's wonderful. I was excited to listen. And the more I listened, I thought, huh, maybe I do have some perfectionism that I just didn't label that way. And, you know, the two of you talked about how sometimes there are assumptions about what perfectionism looks like, but there's really not a typical kind of perfectionist. And one of the things Jennifer mentions is she says for her, it's, it's about being incompetent. And this is why she buys so many books and does so many trainings. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's me. And then she talked about giving assignments where she has people write your, your, or your the wrong way. And I literally physically cringed, you know, like as a way to practice being imperfect and taller. And I cringed. I thought, oh my God, I, I don't know if I could do it. And, you know, there were just a number of things that that showed up that I thought, oh my gosh, like the I really do have a lot of these kind of tendencies and, uh, and avoidance strategies. What about you? Yeah, no, I feel the same way. I don't generally consider myself to be highly perfectionistic, but there are certain areas where I can get a little bit overly perfectionist. And actually, you know, this list that is in her book, in Jennifer's book, lists some things that are a little bit surprising that could be forms of perfectionism, such as, you know, having trouble making a decision or procrastinating or worrying a lot about not offending or hurting people, almost like a people-pleasing type of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And that really got me thinking about how, you know, sometimes perfectionism shows up in unhelpful ways, but what's underlying it is really this fear of not doing things right, fearing that maybe, you know, if you don't achieve certain things or you don't do things just so, that other people will judge you. And it it reminded me a lot of the episode I did a few months back with Meg McKelvey. We do a lot of work together on belonging and mismanaged yearning for belonging, belonging and how sometimes our very efforts to keep up to a high standard so that other people will approve of us and we will feel accepted by others actually backfire because we yeah. get so rigidly like clinging on to everything being just perfect that it actually makes it really hard sometimes for other people to relate to us. I think that's so true. And it makes me realize when I think about my own tendencies, I wouldn't consider myself a perfectionist if I'm like home alone and my house is messy. But if I were having people over, I would kick into overdrive of needing to pick every single thing, you know, every piece of clutter up off the counter and get rid of the dust bunnies. And I get really stressed out and really anxious. I make everybody around me miserable. Um, And yet, if I go to a friend's house and their house isn't totally perfect and clean, I actually feel closer to them for being imperfect and human. You know, Jennifer at the end says something about this messy and imperfect but fulfilling life. And I just loved that so much. And it really reminded me how, you know, we tend to bond with each other and feel a greater sense of belonging, like you're saying, when when we're flawed. You know, when other people are perfect, that doesn't actually, I mean, not that perf- perfect is even attainable, but when they have the appearance of being perfect, I think that actually diminishes our sense of connection with others. And at the end of the day, like, isn't that really what we all desperately crave? Right. And if we could just be more authentic, you know, imperfections and all, I think that that really would help us all feel that sense of common humanity, right? That nobody's perfect. And that's okay, right? That's not just okay. That's what makes us lovable, right? Is all of our imperfections. Exactly. Well, we hope you enjoy this episode with Jennifer Kemp. We've also just wanted to share that we've done another episode in the past on perfectionism, episode 88. If you want more resources, you can check that out. And there's also a book that's coming out in a couple of months called The Anxious Perfectionist, which is also an act-oriented book about perfectionism when it's tied to anxiety. It's quite different from Jennifer's book, but that's another resource that you might want to be on the lookout as well if you want to learn more about perfectionism. My guest today, Jennifer Kemp, is a clinical psychologist in Australia. She works with clients who are struggling with perfectionism, as well as problems that are associated with perfectionism, like 
anxiety, depression, eating and body image problems, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Jennifer integrates ACT, behavior analysis, exposure, and compassion-focused therapy approaches in her therapeutic and consultation work. She also presents internationally on the topic of perfectionism. She provides professional consultation to therapists seeking to deepen their therapeutic skills and fluency in ACT. And she's also the author of a new book, The ACT Workbook for Perfectionism. It's terrific. You should check it out if you want to do a little self-help work on perfectionism. And we're going to be talking about the book today. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really thrilled to be on Psychologist Off the Clock. I just love these, these podcasts. Oh, thank you so much. I think perfectionism, I'm really excited to have you here today. Partly to honor the work that you're doing. I've attended one of your workshops before. um, And, you know, I see a lot of perfectionism in my work and around me. I think it's a really good topic because I think a lot of people can relate to that experience of perfectionism. Yeah, absolutely. I think the workshop you would have attended would have been the perfectionistic therapist a couple of years ago. And I, every time I present on that, I have people just like, yes, that's me. Like, (laughs) oh my God, that's me. Like they, yeah, they seem to really, really, like it really resonates with psychologists and other therapists working out there. Um, We just set such high standards for ourselves and um, just, yeah, and then get really caught up in it, I think. And I still do it myself. Right. Therapists and clients alike. I mean, it's, they, right. I mean, there's a lot of it going around. And actually I, Along those lines, I think that often, not always, of course, but often as therapists, as psychologists, as you know, mental health professionals, sometimes we get drawn to working with particular issues that we have experienced ourselves or that has personal relevance to us. And I was just wondering if you could talk about your own personal story that led you into doing this particular kind of work. Yeah, sure. I, um, I've struggled with perfectionism my whole life, but it took me a long time to work out that that's what was going on. So I, um, I had an eating disorder, uh, when I was in my teens. Well, I started by dieting like you do. So I started by sort of hard dieting and wanting a thigh gap and wanting a flat stomach and all the things that my current clients are, you know, chasing and, um, such common goals for, for us to have. And, um, and then out of the back of that, I didn't know how to eat properly. So it became very chaotic and I developed this kind of eating disorder that kind of lasted. I mean, I'd still say to some degree my eating isn't completely normal, um, but I, it's kind of lasted a lot of years and I had a lot of anxiety across that time as well. So in my mid-20s, I was still like I finished a university degree I um, in psychology. I did well. I was working in various roles here in Australia and also working overseas. So on the outside, I was successful. But um, if I got feedback from a manager or someone pulled me up on something in my work, I would just fall to pieces like they wouldn't necessarily see it. But I'd spend days just sort of um, – telling myself off basically and working out what I should have done better. And um, and I ended up kind of off the back of one of those jobs where I resigned because it was a really stressful job. Um, I had a major depressive episode and it was only um, like I went through all of that and I saw a therapist at the time, like I saw a therapist to help me with my eating disorder um, and sort of get back on track with that. And it was really helpful and I saw someone about anxiety in my 20s and um, I wasn't working as a psychologist at the time, was working as a business analyst. I came back to psychology later in life. But um, and, and when I did, I went to a one-day workshop with Professor Tracy Wade, who's actually, she's a world leader in eating disorders and has a book on perfectionism as well. And she's based here in Adelaide. And um, I went to a one-day workshop called Perfectionism as a Transdiagnostic Process. And it was, um, I I walked in and she was playing this song uh, by Rachel Ferguson, Never Good Enough. I've actually emailed her and got the link from that later on because I needed to know what it was. And I just heard this song, Never Good Enough. My eyes just completely filled with tears. And this is, I'm now 
it's about 30 by this point. Um, I've been struggling away for years and years and, and being successful at the same time. And um, I sat there that day and it just kind of all fell into place for me. Like, oh my goodness, all of these problems that I've been struggling with all these years, there's one sort of common thread to all of that and that's this perfectionism that ties it all together. And I took sort of copious notes, not just of the content, but also sort of my own observations and how I connected it for myself. And I took it back to my therapist at the time um, and literally handed it over and said, this, this here, this is what I need to work on. And no one, despite you know, therapy being really helpful over the years, no one had picked it up. No one had sort of said this way you're behaving around setting really high standards for yourself and then kind of beating yourself up when you don't achieve them um, and, and you know, being very scared of failing, that this is what sort of glues it all together. So that, that was about, oh, gosh, it's a lot of years now. <laughs> I'm going to age myself. Um, that was about... It was. I was must have been over thirty. It was uh, twenty eleven when I uh, went to this workshop. I think because I was just starting a master's in clinical psychology at the time, and um, I ended up doing my thesis on perfectionism as part of that, and starting to work with perfectionistic clients since then. Obviously, start working on my own stuff too. So I've been working on that now for for over a decade, and I still keep stuffing it up. But like in terms of falling into perfectionistic traps but I've come a long way and my clients have taught me a whole lot as well so uh yeah so it's it's amazing to me and one of the reasons I feel so passionate about talking about this and sharing it with people is that it it took me going to the therapist to say here this is something I need to work on um this is not just sort of part of who I am like a part of my personality this seems like something I could change and that's when I started working on it. You know, I appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you. I think your work has helped me see that often it really does underlie multiple things that are going on on the surface. So eating and body image, anxiety, of course, depression, some of these other kinds of struggles that people get into. And it's so interesting to me that you went to that workshop and tears showed up because I've actually seen that a few times in clients where if perfectionism comes up and how hard people are on themselves, that there's an emotional reaction to that, which often just really indicates that's what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, isn't that how it works in therapy? So where the tears show up, that's where the important stuff is. (laughs) So yeah, if you're starting to touch on those sort of themes of like just never being good enough, for example, you'll see people just do the same that I did, just kind of their eyes flood with tears, they tighten up in their bodies, they sort of see them choking up. You know you're in the right place as a therapist when that's happening, right? Yeah, you've hit something, you've hit a nerve, yeah. So in your book, one of the things that you you write about is that there are there's helpful perfectionism, there's unhelpful perfection, and then there's also clinical perfectionism where it's really interfering with people's lives to a significant degree. I'm curious your thoughts about how would you, what would you be on the lookout for, it, you know, for one of our listeners maybe to have a sense of is this perfectionism okay, no big deal, or is it actually a problem for me? What, what would be some of the indicators? Yeah, so it's ultimately whether it's causing problems in your life. I'll often say to people, we don't need to change everything about what you're doing. You don't need to be perfect at this. <laughs> um, it's always, <laughs> always being perfect, paradox. being imperfect, right? <laughs> always the paradox of working with perfectionistic people is they try to do that perfectly, of course. So we, that's, that's part of the work that you're doing. Um, trying to, I guess there's... The, often talk about it kind of tipping over an edge, like sort of if we could just scale this back 10%, we could kind of bring it back to the helpful aspects. So those helpful aspects are kind of striving towards things that are really important to you, uh, being able to change your approach to that so that you could adjust it if it's not working and try something new, feel a sense of achievement and accomplishment with that, like they're all the great things about perfectionism, like wanting to do a great job. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, 
and I always really point out I'm not trying to make like make you kind of average here I'm not trying to just kind of make you aim for mediocrity we need to just like keep on striving to do a great great job there's nothing wrong with that and you probably wouldn't change it even if I asked you to so let's not waste our time here I think that's a great thing but where it becomes a problem is like it tips over the edge and that's where behavior is being driven by the things that we're scared of so um and the, the major thing is fear of failure so that's where your kind of behavior becomes kind of rigid and around rules and you're starting to notice that like instead of like wanting to do well at uni, you uh, must always get A's or here in Australia, call them high distinctions. And then you must have a perfect GPA. And then it's like, I must have a perfect score in every assignment, no matter how much it's worth all the time. That's when it's starting to become really rigid and rule bound. And I would say that at that end, we're on a sort of slippery slope towards more OCD. So when I'm working clinically with people, I'm also assessing for that if I'm seeing that really rigid behavior, because I do think that it's sort of a continuum here and that OCD is kind of out one end of that. So we do need to to be checking for that. Um, that even when it's become kind of stuck on those standards, as a therapist, it's like I must help every client in every session all the time, like how easy it is to kind of get hooked into that expectation of ourselves. And the other thing you'd be seeing in people is, I guess, if you're always setting that really high standard and you're really scared of not achieving it, so failing in some way, um, then really beating yourself up if you don't get there. So that's constant perfectionistic self-criticism, like nitpicking and and watching everything that you do. Um, A lot of us struggle with self-criticism. I think it's a, it's a just, I think it's part of the human condition, honestly. Uh, But I think it can become very perfectionistic around like fault finding and trying to, you're actually doing it to avoid making mistakes in the future. Just I've got to pick up every single thing I've done wrong and, make sure that I notice so that I don't do it again. Um, I think that that those are the kinds of behaviours that you're seeing. So lots of checking and rewriting or avoiding things altogether so I don't make a mistake and picking on myself, criticising myself if I don't. And then ultimately at the end of that, that's going to have some pretty negative impacts on your life, isn't it? And so I think that's the ultimate measure in the end. Well, we'll pick up on a few of those threads a little bit later to unpack those a little bit more, if that's okay with you. And I want to just highlight the cost. I think you, you talk in your book, I think about a few different areas where the cost can be high. Mm -hmm. And there's actually two I wanted to ask you about. The first is I do a lot of work in the area of burnout. And you mentioned that a couple of times throughout your book, just stress and burnout. Um, What, what do you think is the link between perfectionism and burnout or stress for people? Yeah, it's a great question. It could be a number of things. So <clears throat> burnout could come from, I guess, and you're the expert in this, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say from overworking, striving too hard and kind of getting stuck, spending too long doing certain things. So I know, I do know some therapists who spend a long time writing up their notes because they don't want to get in trouble down the track if their notes aren't great, if they get, you know, subpoenaed by court or something, or they want to make sure they've perfectly captured all of the content in the session. So they spend a lot of time, say, writing up their notes. And um, this has a it adds on to their day an extra hour hour or more of work so it sort of contributes to burnout like that extra work that extra time and that needing for it to be perfect can really grind you down and I think probably I think it's a bit of a stereotype to think that all um, perfectionists are kind of high achievers because actually I often see the opposite as well often see people who are struggling to do anything because they can't do it to their own standards. So I think burnout can come from pulling away from the things that are really important to you because you don't want to stuff them up. You don't want to do badly. And then you kind of get disconnected 
For yeah, disconnection, people. totally. Yeah, yes. which leads to depression, right? That's one of the major causes of depression is being disconnected from the things that are important to us, whether they be relationships or, or meaningful work. Um, yeah, the kinds of things that really make a difference to us. So yeah, that's how I would say. Yeah, yeah. I think I just know I was reading something about parental burnout and how parents who have this belief that they must be the greatest parent ever all the time are at higher risk for burnout because it's yeah. right. It's just too stressful. Nobody can really do that, and so that chronic stress of trying to be so good all the time. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I've absolutely fallen into that, particularly when the kids were younger, like trying to do be the perfect mum and yeah. it just was so stressful <laughs> and I think it made me more grumpy you know and I'm trying to be perfect so then I'm just getting frustrated and I'm getting grumpy and that's taking me even further away from being what I wanted and what vicious cycle. <laughs> well that's a good segue into the other cost of perfectionism I wanted to highlight that I think is maybe the most important one, which is the toll on relationships. Could you talk a little bit about what you've seen with that, with how perfectionism can, you know, get in the way of relationships? Yeah, well, I guess it can, that could happen two ways, can't it? I think there's a whole book in that and I um, am unpacking that. I, um, first of all, if we're expecting ourselves to be perfect in a relationship, that can really put a lot of, um, a lot of pressure on how you behave in a relationship. I see it a lot when I work with young adults who are dating at the moment. Dating just seems to be on the whole quite toxic and the online dating scene. So trying to like present perfectly and have the, like the witty response and, really it's really performative isn't it that kind of um, and look you know look perfect so needing to go out on a date or whatever looking amazing and it's just not real so you're not actually getting to know people and it gets in the way of making connections and then I think it, it gets in the way of making connections in general with people and particularly if you also hold perfectionistic standards for other people <laughs> That can, like, if you're in an established relationship and you're expecting your partner to be perfect, and my husband's given me permission to say that he he is also perfectionistic, so it has definitely caused tension at times um, of like having expectations that just because you know that you should be doing something that you automatically will be doing something that you won't forget it or overlook it and having those expectations can cause a lot of conflict as well. I think there's so many ways. There'd be a couple of ways anyway. It could undermine relationships. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Not start by working on yourself, but having on, un- and, and that, that, those work relationships too, having on un- unrealistic expectations of like the people in your team or your peers can be very, very stressful and make you very, um, unsatisfied at work, frustrated yeah. too. Yeah. No one can ever quite meet your standards. No, no. Right. Mm. You know, you mentioned that there are some assumptions about what perfectionism looks like, right? That high achieving person or someone who's very meticulous about things or something like that. But actually you say in the book, there's no typical perfectionist, right? There's all kinds of variations of this. And you have a list of perfectionistic behaviors, which was really striking to me to look at it because some of it was very surprising to me. Mm. Um, I don't know why. It was just like different domains that you might not even associate with perfectionism. So I was just wondering, could you give maybe just for listeners who have that same assumption about what perfectionism looks like, could you give some examples of some of the different forms that you might see in your practice? Yeah, so I work a lot with chronic health problems and have done for a long time. I used to work in the cystic fibrosis unit at the big teaching hospital here. Um, and cystic fibrosis is a, a life-limiting like genetic disorder that affects your lungs and your digestion, multiple organs. Um, and uh, I found it a lot amongst clients there who were really struggling to actually progress in their lives so they've been sort of raised with that 
I had six-year-old clients who were told that they wouldn't make their teens and were still, you know, had made it to their 60s. Um, but I had a lot of sort of young 20-something clients, often guys, not always, who had really struggled to make the transition from adolescence, where I'm picking them up at 18 because I was in the adult service. So they'd really struggled to to make the transition from adolescence where mum and dad controlled all their treatments. So they have to do various inhalers and puffers and take certain medications every time they eat as well as every day. And um, they'd struggle to sort of take control of that for themselves. So they weren't really um, taking any ownership over their treatments and they were spending their days kind of hiding out. And I think uh, like gaming and um, not that had built no friends, perhaps they hadn't finished school, they sort of just dropped off the planet. So my job was to sort of help them get back into their lives and, uh, and find purpose and meaning. But where what I often found was they had these sort of perfect expectations of themselves. So I must be doing the doing my uh, pulmazyme inhaler, I'm supposed to do it twice a day and they're not doing it at all. Uh, and so this sort of idea of perfectionistic goal setting in chronic health problems is really, I find like super useful to sort of think of it that way because um, what I end up working on is trying to increase the frequency of that behavior over time rather than set what I would call like a perfect forever goal where I'm supposed to start doing my um, my pulmazyme every day and continue every day for the rest of my life doing it twice a day perfectly. And, of course, by the second day I've forgotten and I've failed. And so I've had many of those experiences, so now I'm not going to do it at all. I was like, give up. I don't want to go back through that cycle of, like, expecting myself to do it perfectly and then not, not being able to live up to that standard. So breaking that down has been really important. You'll see, um, you'll see it a lot in um, weight-related issues. So I also work now with weight with a chron- as a chronic health concern. So I work with a lot of people who uh, have larger bodies, uh, binge eating um, or mixed between binging and restricting. And uh, they'll also set these perfectionistic goals where it's like, I'm going to – I say, so what would be – one small thing that you think, you know, that you could start, we could work on. I'm going to go for a walk every day. Yeah. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> you're not doing that. Like you feel like laughing. Like, no, you're not. No one can do that goal. There's going to be rain. There's going to be work. There's going to be low motivation. So we start by saying, okay, I'm going to see you in two weeks. Let's see how many walks you can get done. And if you can get done two or three, great. You know, if you can go once, well, that's one more than you were doing. And we'll start there and we'll build on that. We'll start to build up that behavior over time. So I think you see it a lot in those kinds of goals. Um, and they're the ones that don't kind of stand out, I think. I also see a lot of clients who have very, like, I must have a perfect GPA, that kind of thing as well. I seem to have a lot of university student type age clients. Um but I do, yeah, I certainly see it as well in, in just people not doing anything at all. Yeah, that's so. I think that's so um, counterintuitive because it can sometimes turn into this all or nothing thing where it's like, well, I can't do it perfectly, so I'm going to do nothing or I'm going to just completely totally. give up on it. Totally. I didn't make think- sport as a teen. Like I was like, don't I, I'm not good at this. I'm not naturally coordinated. So I just – Please don't make me do sport, team sport. Hate it. Yes. <laughs> Just opt it out anytime I could. Well, in that in that list that you have in your book where you talk about different behaviors, perfectionistic behaviors, it wasn't a lot of different domains. You know, you're keeping your home a certain way, but it could also look like hoarding yeah. behavior. It yeah. could, you know, it could show up in your hobbies. It's like, well, I'm not going to learn to play the guitar because I won't be you know, Jimi Hendrix or something mm. like that. So why bother? You know, it's it's yeah. just interesting to me. It's It shows up in ways that you might not expect, but underneath it, it's the same type of, you know, high standards and perfectionistic thinking driving the, the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It can really fall out in any different, yeah, all sorts of different ways. Yeah. 
Um, I think one of the things that's really, I just want to highlight it again and, and maybe unpack it a little bit is what's really driving it deep down, like taking a deeper look at it. And this is why I appreciate the acceptance and commitment therapy approach that you take in your workbook. What's really at the heart of perfectionism is that underlying emotional discomfort, right? Whether it's fear of failure, shame, shame around failure. Could you talk about how you approach, I guess, what's really going on underneath? Yeah, sure. So, well, I think all of us want to avoid feeling uncomfortable, don't we? Um, even, I say this to my clients and my trainees, even unicellular organisms will move away from something that is uncomfortable, that is an aversive thing for them. And humans are no different. So if you framed up failing as something that's unwanted, which honestly, by, I think by definition it is, right? Like no one goes I out. I don't love failing. No, no one goes out there and says, hey, today I'm going to fail. Like let's have a great day. Like despite what they might say in motivational, you know, like the motivational YouTube channels, no one would do that really. I think um, – so by definition, we want to avoid that. And when I say failing, I kind of mean in the broader sense. So failing being making a mistake, being sort of rejected by other people, feeling incompetent in some way, uh, and, and any of those can trigger a sense of shame. And humans will go a long way in particular to avoid feeling shame. So they will um, it, it shapes a, a huge amount of our, our behaviour. So... We can sort of think about this, This there's usually one theme, like for me, it's being incompetent, which is one reason why I buy so many books and attend so many trainings is because um, I don't want to be incompetent and it causes really unhelpful behaviours in, in therapy, I think for me, because I do a lot of like needing to be, like do it right kind of behaviours and um, a lot of like mulling over what I could be doing better, which isn't always really helpful. I've got better at not doing that, but it drives a lot of kind of probably reassurance seeking behavior on my part that I'm doing, doing okay. So that underneath kind of like the engine room for perfectionism is this sort of fear of mistakes, failure, being rejected and feeling shame. And so we want to get away from those uncomfortable feelings. Um, it really helped me. And what we talk about in the book is sort of identifying kind of when that shows up. So I, I notice that when I ever make, when I make a mistake and I feel incompetent, I get a, like a clenching, sick feeling in my stomach. If it's really bad mistake, I'll feel nauseous. I'll feel really like, just like sick to my stomach and a lot of sort of anxiety and tension out of that. So a lot of sort of tightness in my chest. Those physical sensations are really uncomfortable and unwanted, and that's what we talk about in the acceptance and commitment therapy, isn't it? It's like how do we still do the things that are important to us even in the presence of these kinds of uncomfortable feelings? So I think the first place to start is identifying when they show up and noticing that and then pausing it long enough to sort of make a choice about how am I going to behave even though I feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I think it's so important to acknowledge that because if people are working, if people are looking to change that pattern and get off the perfectionism train, you know, that is going to all show up, right? That all that stuff that you're talking about, the discomfort inside, the, the yeah. feeling in the pit of your stomach. Yeah, yeah. And if we wait until that goes away to make a change, you won't make the change. Yeah. Because ultimately, we have to kind of do things even though we feel uncomfortable doing them. And that that essentially is, I guess, one of the themes of the book is help, helping people find ways to make those changes. And again, we don't need to change everything. It might be just very small things, very small habits that are kind of heading us down a direction that, that are proving to be very unhelpful for us. Um, I'll get clients to sit with me and send a text with a spelling mistake in it like and watch them squirm like just the thought of that like I want you to write your and your like do the wrong one <gasps> like what 
Um, and making a mistake like that is just uh, just to test out, like, okay, now what shows up? What is going to be the kind of um, – what are those sensations that are showing up right now? Because those are the same ones that are going to show up when you try these other things that you need to, when you send that email to your boss without checking it 10 times or, you know, um, yeah, submit your report early without having done those 15 extra reviews or those kinds of things. So, um, Do you encourage your clients to do these things on purpose as a little form of exposure therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. use a bit of exposure therapy. So I, I mean, I think honestly the skills that you learn in, to treat OCD, you can almost use anywhere. <laughs> I think right. um, I, heard, I heard Lisa Coyne say that recently um, that it's like a framework for therapy and I, and I'm doing acts when I'm integrating that idea of like, let's see if we can like get clear on how we're going to feel. So let's bring it right now into the room. Like, and let's create an, an experience where you're feeling it right now because otherwise it's just all theoretical. And yeah, you go yeah. home and it's just too hard or you're too busy and, of course, it is You know, because it's really hard to make yourself feel uncomfortable. So let's practice that here a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that people can take a look at your book for some really helpful strategies around how to do some of this work on their own or if you're a therapist listening you can do some of this with your clients. And I think, for instance, you have some strategies for increasing flexibility, you know, for, for having a bit more willingness to feel some of that discomfort for being a little bit more flexible around self stories and and that kind of thing. So I think that it's really helpful to me to think about some ways to loosen up on some of this and to get out of that whole cycle Mm -hmm. Um, so that you can be flexible, especially if something's not working in your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's not easy to do, right? I like to sit at the same seat at the dining table because it's the one closest to the kitchen and I'm running in and out. But so that was my justification for choosing that one. But now it's like, oh, that feels weird sitting somewhere else. But just little things like that, um, just loosening it up a little can be really good. It just puts us into that little zone of being uncomfortable. It's not a mistake, but it, it's sort of instead of nudging into being more flexible, which I think is great. Um, I talk about like that curiosity and um, willingness. So willingness to feel uncomfortable is one of the key things. It's really hard. Um, it's you've, got, you've got to somehow make a choice to feel uncomfortable and trying something new. Yeah. And I think it is, it's, what is keeping perfectionism going is often that people don't want to feel that. And so it just maintains it, keeps it going over time. It reinforces it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. The more you do it, the more it's reinforced exactly because the behavior that you're doing takes away that uncomfortable feeling. So that's like negative reinforcement. Basically that's what that's called. And it just means that you're more likely to do that behavior again. Uh, because you because it works everything we're doing makes sense you know it, it works it's just that in the in the short term it's just that in the long term it's starting to cause problems and right so yeah just I'll just read it through one more time I'll just check that email one more time it works I I feel a little reassured that it's the quality is better or that I haven't made any mistakes but then I'm staying back at work for an extra couple of hours a day because it's taking me so long to get my work done because I'm doing all of this checking. Now that's a problem. And uh, so we have to start with a small behavior in order to fix that bigger problem. Right. You're losing sleep because five hours later you're tweaking your paper or your PowerPoint slides. and <laughs> Oh, my PowerPoint slides. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> See, that one caught me recently. I gotta tell you that story. Um, I just did a I did a workshop for Praxis. It's the first one that I've done. I know that you have a relationship with Praxis. Um, so you're familiar with them. And for me, I built it up to this like massive thing in my head. Uh, I had to come up with at least half of the content was completely new and 
every time I present, I rework my content anyway. So it's, it's never the same. Like I'm always refining my thinking. So everything has a new wash over it, but some of it is, you know, what is perfectionism that the core of that doesn't change. But I spent, oh gosh, I had six months notice that I was going to run this course because uh, we picked it to run in the fall in the US and we organized it back in January or something. I went down this whole rabbit hole of like trying to think about curriculum design and refreshing my memory on how to do that. Total waste of time. And then I came up with, you have to do these sort of big forms for like getting CEs. Uh, so I had to come up with a curriculum and learning goals and I did all of that. That was a lot of work. And then I had to create it. And somehow, whilst I created the framework, I spent so long just messing about with the format of it that there were still big pieces. Like I was behind despite having six months to write this thing. I was behind I was a week out I'm going I haven't even finished it which is like there was no reason for that to have happened but yet I hadn't even finished it and then um and then I got I built it up to be this this huge thing in my head um and the night before like across the week before because it was Friday mornings for me Thursday evenings for the U.S. and across the week leading up, I just got more and more anxious. And the night before, I was like, I'm not even going to sleep. Like, I'm so nervous. Even though it, the first session was pretty much all familiar content. Like, I know this stuff standing on my head. I was so anxious. And I, I think it went fine in the end. But the next week, I had to give myself a really big talking to in the kindest way because I practice self-compassion, maybe. Um I realized that my perfectionism had just kicked in this massive amount of anxiety and it wasn't sustainable and I needed just to calm it down and really like, you've got this, okay? you know this stuff, um, you've learned some things about what works and doesn't work in this particular context, use that for the next one, um, finish off the presentation and just do it, just do it and see how it goes. And each one got easier. But, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. Ten years, 12 years I've been working on this and I just completely fell back into that that trap and this is how it goes. It was like this was really important for me, this workshop. Like it really – I built it up to be this thing and I had to do it exceptionally and it meant so much to do it that well and that's where I, it all like it fell apart for me. I think it went fine. Like the feedback is it went fine, uh, but you know, for me personally, it was just my goodness. I think what I love about this story so much is just how it it's so human. How easily we slip back into old patterns, and it sometimes just takes us a while. Even if we literally wrote the book yeah, <laughs> about no. it, and we are, you know, you're doing the irony of doing the training oh. on perfectionism, and oh yeah, not realizing. I mean, just picturing you tweaking every little you know, oh, font gosh, size so. and changing around your up in there. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Spent. I spend a lot of time. That's where one one area where perfectionism still does catch me. I do in general, spend a lot of time preparing for particularly conference presentations and workshops. And I don't mind it because sometimes that that tweaking that I'm doing is me, I'm sort of doing it while I'm thinking, like it's a process of thinking through. I spend, I think it, I think it comes across. I spend a lot of time thinking about how much I can fit into that time. What are the key things that the audience really wants? Like I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And sometimes I'm doing that while I'm fiddling with the font size. And sometimes I'm just fiddling with the font size as well. And, um, yeah, and so I do spend longer. I don't mind that to a point, but this was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, cross line from helpful professionalism to unhelpful, didn't it? Yeah. And, and here's the funny part is that I didn't even kind of realize until I came out the other side of that first workshop. So it was four weekly workshops and um, I came out the other side of that weekly workshop I was actually reading someone else's book on perfectionism that's coming out next year and then I went oh that's me <laughs> it, it took reading someone else's book <laughs> to actually go oh my goodness this is what I'm doing 
How oh, funny. Yeah, yes. I know. Yeah. You had to get that perspective shift. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about self-criticism, if that's okay, because that's come up, that's been peppered throughout the conversation so far, but I think it's so key to talking about perfectionism. And and I'm just curious, both with your clients and also, it sounds like you've been prone to it yourself as well. And as you do things like put books out into the world and write talks and that kind of thing, could you maybe just talk a little bit about what that might look like and any thoughts around the most effective way to work with self-critical thinking. Yeah, well, I think it's great that you've picked that up um, as a key point because if you don't have a lot of time and you're working with someone or you're working on this yourself and you want to pick the things that will make the biggest difference, then tackling self-criticism is is one of those two things. The other one is those unhelpful habits that, you know, unpacking that and then the self-criticism and trying and learning how to be more compassionate towards yourself is the other thing. If you don't have a lot of time to do that, that has made the biggest difference for me is learning how to speak to myself with a warmer, kinder kind of tone. Like I could have spent that week between the first and the second workshop really telling myself off for getting anxious and what would be the point honestly it's just going to make me feel worse so picking that up and going okay and a that's gone and b like it's okay this we get into this habit of essentially kicking ourselves when we're down even like I shouldn't be so anxious about this you know I can't believe that I I just got so worked up and spent too long on this like what is the point? Um, the metaphor that I use in the book, and I actually I use this with a client yesterday, is the two teachers metaphor. Um, I don't know if it would be useful to sort of go through and just describe. Oh, that'd be great. Perhaps, yeah. 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 So I'll just tell it to you, Debbie, like I would tell anyone else. So um, if you imagine that you had, and I think you do have school age kids, so imagine that you had like a. Um, a young child who was just starting school. So they had like a normally developing child, some strengths and some things they're not so great at. Um, perhaps they were struggling to learn how to read or struggling to sit down well, you know, and be still in class or struggling with numeracy, something like that. So just a normally developing child. And they have, um, they're just starting out at school and they have two teachers um, Simply like in a job share situation. And uh, so one teacher comes up to your child and says, why can't you do this already? I've already shown you. You should be doing this better by now. You need to get your act together, sit down and get your work done. Oof. Like I feel yeah, like, I'm just like oh. <laughs> I felt like, a reaction to that, right? Yeah, right. I do too. Every time I say it, I have to say like, oh, my stomach feels a little bit sick. Um, yeah, horrible, right? Um, but that's one the way one teacher talks to your child. And um, then they, your child has another teacher as well. And this teacher is completely different. Um, she comes and she sits down next to your child. She says, hey, I can see you're really struggling here. Um, show me where you're at and, and what you need help with. Let's go through a couple of questions together. Um, and let's just see if we can do a few more before we, you know, go out to play. Um, which teacher would you prefer for your child? Oh, the second without a, even a hesitation. Yeah. And which teacher do you think is going to help them long-term learn and grow as a little human? The second. Yeah. yeah. Right. And which teacher is more like the way that you would talk to yourself? Well, yes, it depends. But when you're in that self-critical place and when you're being so hard on yourself, which we all get there sometimes, I definitely hear a little bit of that voice of the first. Yeah, the first. Yeah. And most of my clients would say, oh, like you can just see you know, the, the first. Um, I know that you've been work, probably working on that yourself for, for a while, given the, the, the work that you do. But um most of us, when we make a mistake, when we 
uh, stuff up in some kind of way, we speak to ourselves like the first, I should have done that better. How could I have been so stupid? Why have I made this mistake? And we're just kicking ourselves when we're down. We're just, and it's like an amplifier for that, for that struggle that we're in. So we, we need to, to learn how to speak to ourselves like the second teacher. It, that's those, mo- those elements of self-compassion, which are um, the skills of self-compassion, you know, our motivation to help, you know, the, what do you need right now? Um, a non-judgmental voice, like, I can see that you're struggling here. Um, and still holding ourselves accountable, you know, with that, that teacher was still wanted, you know, still said, let's do a few more before we go out to play. I think we can think that we need to be hard on ourselves, to be motivated, but actually we can still motivate ourselves through encouragement, through warmth, through kindness, through being non-judgmental. And I think in the long term, um, tackling that has made the biggest difference for me doing things like these podcasts, writing a book, um, public speaking. I don't think I could have ever done that before I kind of found a way of, of going, okay, so that didn't work so well. Like let's, you know, what do you need? What, how, what do we need to work on here? And finding a kind of way of talking to myself. I think honestly I really would have, if, if I was still beating myself up the way I was doing it in my mid-20s, I'd never be able to do this kind of work. Yeah, you would probably, it would be too painful to do if you were talking to yourself in that way. I'd be too scared to stop. Yeah. I had a client literally today who said she's so much harder on herself than she ever would be to anyone else. Mm -hmm. So anyone who can resonate with that should check out the book because you have a whole chapter on how to be more compassionate toward yourself, how to be kinder to yourself and to work on that voice, the the voice of the second teacher who's a little bit more encouraging and it's, it's really the the antidote to that self-critical yeah. tone, the self-criticism yeah. that shows up. Yeah. I know you shouldn't play favorites, but chapter six and seven are my favorites in the book and probably oh, chapter eight. <laughs> um, it's what the world needs, right? We all need just a little more compassion. Yeah. Are you, um, we use the passengers on the bus metaphor to, to, to work on like how we can be that, like how that self-critical voice can sort of drive the – try to drive the bus like down the road if you're if you're the driver of this bus then how does that that passenger that self-critical passenger influence um and learning to speak to yourself in a way and um that is more is warmer and less judgmental and learning not to respond it's the other piece of that so even though i sitting writing that book i would be saying stuff like that so i apologize for swearing but this is what was going on in my head it's like this is shit this is shit no one's gonna like this like i would literally be some days just constantly this is shit this is shit that's just going on and on and on in my head um and i didn't let it stop me writing the book and so i decided that i was going to head down the road to where i wanted to go um, it's painful those days were exhausting um yeah hearing that over and over again but in the end it quietened down because I wasn't sort of doing what it wanted me to do I wasn't letting that determine the, the road that I wanted to take so yeah not, you kept writing yeah yeah kept writing I've got another book in my head still I've already started planning it so yeah and I'm not gonna let this voice derail that one either yeah. it's funny I gave a presentation recently and I caught myself you know, these online presentations where you're staring at this screen and you can't even see anybody. And I just kept thinking, this is so boring. I'm boring everyone. This is, and then I did a a thought, a cognitive diffusion exercise as part of the workshop. And I noticed I was having that thought and I was able to, to, to recognize, okay, I'm just being self-critical here. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm boring people or not, but I'm going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can maybe stop beating myself up over how boring I am. <laughs> yep, or maybe just keep presenting anyway, even though that that is still going on in your head. There it is again. That's right. Keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to bail now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is really hard to present to a blank screen. Like, there's no doubt you have no feedback. That is. That is really – I take my hat off to sort of TV presenters because that, that's what they do all the time, isn't it? Um, talking to camera, 
so hard. Yeah, you don't have that nice person in the front row smiling and nodding at you to keep you going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No interview focused on acceptance and commitment therapy would be complete without talking a little bit about values. And and maybe as our final question here, as we're wrapping up, you have a chapter on values as well and moving toward you know, having kind of a messy and imperfect, but fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it might offer listeners who are getting trapped by perfectionism, a little bit of hope, maybe if you could give some examples of ways that you've seen people transform perfectionism into something a little bit closer mm-hmm. to their values, or maybe it could be your own life. I mean, I think you've already shared some things that mm-hmm. you've done. Um, but how does that, how does that transform? Yeah, I th- well, I think for a start, we need to get an idea of what is like down the road. Where do we want to head? What is important to us? We can get so stuck in doing things right, doing things well or exceptionally that we're kind of stuck on a really short-term loop, kind of like a hamster in a wheel, really, chasing a kind of perfection, but really not thinking about where it wants to take us and where we want to go down the road. Um, it's always amazing to me to watch clients when they finish therapy uh, kind of learn that it's okay to be different and unique as a person. I had one finish up yesterday and she, we used the two teachers metaphor and she had body image issues and she's like, yeah, you know, some days it's a little bit harder and that voice like, don't let anyone see how you look is really, really loud. But I'm having more and more days where I can just go and be at school and learning and doing the things that I want to do. And she's decided that it, the problems she's been having in school, she's changing school. She's going to have a fresh start. She's looking to uni. She's making those choices and she's okay with that. She, her body is coming with her through all of that adventure. So finding ways of just sort of going, yeah, I'm having that and it's not going to let me like stop me from really getting the most out of these new experiences. Um, it's really lovely to see when people finish up like that. Um, and I, for me personally, that that big, the big shift came from when I started to be kinder, not just to myself, but also to that self-critical part of me. Um, when that that self-critical passenger was, is, is always there and I know that it's trying to help me actually achieve a fulfilling life. It's wanting me to do that flawlessly, which isn't helpful in itself, but it's wanting me to do well. And um, so if I can harness that, then I've been able to, to achieve a bunch of stuff. And um, I just, I've just loved talking about this topic. I just never seem to get tired of talking about it. It's been a real pleasure talking to you over this sort of last hour about it because I, I always learn something new. I always get to um, honestly make a, hopefully make a difference for someone that's listening. Uh, maybe someone sort of goes, oh my goodness, that's me and starts down the journey like I did when I attended that workshop. Um, perhaps someone realizes, hey, maybe I am stuck and I need to change some of my behaviors or maybe I need to be a little kinder to myself when I'm struggling. Um, that's what feeds me. So, uh, and learning to be kind to myself is probably the, the last piece in the puzzle that helped unlock that for me. So, um, yeah, I hope that people find it kind of useful like that whenever I'm speaking. I love talking to other professionals. I work both in consultations with psychologists who struggle with this and doing workshops and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it just really, I think they're the parts of a fulfilling life, isn't it? Like having yeah. those connections, um, making a difference in your own way that you can. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Your values shine through. I'm glad you found your passion for this and then it sustains you because I think, you know, your own perfectionism has been along for the ride and you've yeah. done something that really matters. And I really encourage people to to check out more of your work. Of course, there's your book, which goes into a lot more depth about the things we talked about today. We can link to that and some of your other resources. Um, where can people find out more about your work, Jennifer? 
Yeah, so I've got a website, jenniferkemp.com.au, so they can pop on there, you can sign up to a mailing list. I'm really erratic and sporadic at sending out emails. <laughs> You're not perfect about it, that's good. Totally <laughs> not perfect. You know how they say you should be sending out an email every week with something, I'm like, yeah, nah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> you might not hear from me for a while and then you will. But what I will do is anytime, like I post up on my website um, anything I'm working on at the moment. So you'll find the two teachers metaphors up on there, like um, as a worksheet you could work through yourself and uh, sort of an extract from the book. Um, there's like an ebook on there that just goes through those, you know, I think we talked about it, starts sort of the processes of perfectionism. So if you want to sort of, get your head around that there's a post up as much as I can that can be useful um and my intention is to put something up on there but I'm getting a bit stuck on how to write it um funny that um on the perfectionistic therapist so there will be something up on that for those listeners who are therapists or psychologists working with other people or even um any kind of professional it will be be useful for so that's a good way of finding me, probably, the key spot. Well, great. We will link yeah. to those. And Jennifer, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on today and especially sharing some of your personal stories about that. I think it's it really helps, I think, make it more relatable to know that. So I appreciate that. And, and thank you and congratulations again on your book. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.